1: My guest this week is Conservative member of the House of Lords, Lord Moylan. Daniel, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you. Firstly, could I just ask for your thoughts on what has been a truly historic week in British politics?
0: Well, it's really been a historic um, three months, and I think you have to look at the episode as a whole. And it started with the Conservative Party going completely mad and defenestrating Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they jumped over the cliff. They thought there'd be soft landing on the other side. They didn't look. Uh, and they found that um, three months later, they were still falling. They've now found some sort of purchase uh, and stability in, in the shape of Rishi Sunak. But we'll have to see what he can deliver
1: um, in place of Boris Johnson. Um, and perhaps he can come to that. And quite rightly there, you, you mentioned that uh, Boris Johnson was deposed. And there's been a, a lot of uh, tension, certainly within the, the wider grassroots Conservative Party, about that. And... And you know, that was a, a large reason why many were backing Liz Truss. And we'll, we'll discuss Boris Johnson in a moment. Yeah. But lo- looking at Liz Truss's very brief premiership and uh, how she was forced to resign, essentially, do you think it was right that she was ousted in the way that she was? Or do you think the Conservative MPs just simply didn't give her enough time or enough of an opportunity to see her plans through?
0: Well, I think there were a significant number of Conservative MPs who were actively trying to oust her. And Michael Gove was quite open in his attacks on the government, and I think he spoke for a number. Uh, and the sad thing is that, you know, we, we, we feel we have a democracy, but um, there are too many people now who think that if they lose a vote, that's just an excuse to carry on agitating. Perhaps we saw that most dramatically over Brexit. But the Conservative MPs, having lost the vote, not got the candidate they wanted, as far as the members were concerned, didn't seem to accept the result. And they Mm -hmm. appear to have agitated, some of them, uh, to get Liz Truss out. Now, of course, in some ways, she made it easy for them uh, because she didn't have the right experience, because Quasi, whom I admire greatly and who is a a very intelligent man, uh, nonetheless pressed ahead without proper preparation in the budgetary revolution he was trying to bring out and gave easy handles to establishment, orthodox type enemies. Um, and the whole thing fell apart. But what did it fall apart on in the end? Um, a muddle about which way to vote on a whip. Well, that happens, you know, quite quite often. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't bring the prime minister down. Yeah, She'd done rather well at prime minister's questions earlier mm. that day.
1: I would agree with you there. But you make the point there about uh, individuals like Michael Gove, you know, these real big beasts in Conservative Party who are, uh, agitating from day one to see her removed from office. Why do you think that was? Why do you think there was this almost visceral and intense hatred of what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were trying to do? Or why was it that they they just wanted her gone immediately, just rejected even the premise of having Prime Minister Liz Truss?
0: Well, that's an interesting question because it raises the issue whether they were um, uh, terrified, put off, by the policies and the consequence of those policies in which case as you say it might be reasonable to say we'll give her a chance mm. or whether and I'm not a conspiracy theorist but whether actually the whole intention all the way through was to have Rishi Sunak mm. and the people who supported Rishi Sunak were willing to behave very ruthlessly in order to get him in mm. so um, it's difficult to to decide between those two i'm more pushing in my own mind now towards the latter In other words, there's nothing she could have done, really, that would have got their support. And that, I think, is relevant when we come
1: on to it, to Boris's decision not to stand. Just looking more broadly at Liz Truss's economic plans, do you think they were the right course of action, despite the concerns raised about the the speed of the mini-budget, especially from the founders of this so-called Trussonomics, Gerard Lyons and Julian Jessup? Or do you think, actually, she was right to just reverse the the mini-budget, do a a full abandonment of it, following the... uh, intense market reaction? Well, she clearly wasn't
0: right to abandon it. In retrospect, it didn't work in any way. Let me tell you my view, which isn't quite Mm. the same as Julian Jessop's or Gerard Lyons or even Liz Truss's. My view is that the the major problem facing uh, our economy at the moment um, is out-of-control inflation, Mm. and that it's absolutely necessary to bring that back under control. Now, I'm firmly of the view, and it's slightly old-fashioned, that controlling inflation is a matter of monetary policy. Mm-hmm. It requires the Bank of England to tighten the money supply and to put up interest rates. Um, and those two are reinforcing. They have different ways of tightening the money supply, but putting up interest rates is one of the most important. Instead, however, all of our discussion has been about tax and spend. Now, tax and spend is about fiscal policy. Um, it's called fiscal policy. And and all our discussion has been how much do we want to borrow, how much should we spend? and so on even now under rishi the discussions that are going on between him and jerry jeremy hunt and jeremy hunt and the obr are all about what we should tax and what we should spend so i think that the correct policy for britain is actually higher interest rates hmm. but when you have higher interest rates and the threat of a recession it's very important that you have a fiscal policy which accommodates the harm that is going to be done to the most vulnerable people in that sort of recession. So I would say broadly, we need a tighter monetary policy and somewhat looser fiscal policy. Now, what quasi gave us was looser fiscal policy. Mm. But even he didn't have a clear message on monetary policy, because although it's the Bank of England's responsibility operationally, the inflation target they work to is set by the Chancellor. That's the, that's the right way around. And and there was no sign that the, uh, that he was going to do that and no sign of recognition on Quasi's part that some sort of recession was probably therefore inevitable. Instead, it was cut taxes so that we can have economic growth. But unless you actually deal with the inflationary and monetary side of matters, you wouldn't have had um, growth. You might have had some growth, but it would have been of the sort that we had in the early 1970s. In an episode i remember as a very young person called the barber boom which was just inflation and crash mm. i mean growth inflation and crash it wasn't really uh, it wasn't growth 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 it was growth mm. inflation and crash i didn't buy in totally to mm. trust economics. i mm. thought a fiscal stance with lower mm. taxes would mm. make sense um, if it was um, in order to alleviate the effects of a recession brought about by tighter monetary policy.
1: it makes complete sense and you know we, we've been discussing the role of the Bank of England on on the show for the last few weeks and you know the fact that they should have been more proactive in increasing interest rates to try and stave off inflation, as you say. Briefly on Quasi on Kwarteng, you mentioned his idea of actually going for the fiscal policy over tackling uh, inflation and monetary policy. But should Liz Truss have stood by Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor or following the impact of the mini-budget, was his position just simply untenable?
0: It is partly a political question. And in political terms, clearly abandoning Quasi Kwarteng did her no good at all because they just went straight for her. Um, And she lasted about three or four days more. So in political terms, it was a failure. And maybe she should have tried something else like not sacking him. I don't know what would that have done. But I think it's very important to understand the market reaction. Uh, The market reaction was um, unprepared and fairly horrified. But the main effect was on uh, bond yields, which went up. Now, in principle, we do want bond yields to go up if we're going to defeat inflation. So that wasn't in itself a bad thing. But then we discovered that something that, and I worked in the financial markets and I know something about what goes on, but I had no idea about this. Maybe I'm a bit out of date. Um, We discovered that pension funds had been entering into risky um, leveraging activities, which none of us expected or thought they ever did. And that in order to keep those going, they, um, if the value of their positions went down, they had to provide more collateral. And the collateral they could only provide by selling government bonds, which would um, force the yield even higher. So then they'd have to sell more government bonds. So then they would go into a death spiral. And the whole pension fund industry could have a systemic collapse. Hmm. Now, the Bank of England is there to prevent systemic collapse. One of its jobs is to prevent, since the 1850s, uh, has been to prevent systemic collapses in the financial markets not not the collapse of an individual firm but where the whole system is breaking yeah. down and so the Bank of England stepped in and offered to buy guilds um to to sustain um uh, the market just at the point when it was about to start selling them to try and reverse inflation hmm. but anyway it stepped in and uh, and did that it didn't have to They put 65 billion on the table, but they didn't actually have to spend anything like 65 billion in Mm. order to do it. So that, I think, was the big practical risk. But that was all wrapped up in this huge thing that the markets as a whole have collapsed. But the Mm. markets hadn't collapsed. And and all of a sudden, the anti-government people had discovered that we had decided we had an exchange rate target and the pound had to meet a certain ratio against the dollar. But we haven't had an exchange rate target since 1992. Mm-hmm. So why did they suddenly invent that as a failure?
1: You know? There was certainly a lot of hyperbole thrown about as a result of the mini-budget. But in the subsequent leadership election following uh, Liz Truss's resignation, you were very much backing Boris Johnson. You were hoping he would make a return to Downing Street. But why did you think now was the, the time for him to return as Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party?
0: Well, there's no one else. I mean, the, 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 the fact is Boris Johnson has created or did create um, an electoral coalition um, which is not only good for the Conservative Party um, and gave it an 80-seat majority. Um, That isn't the important thing. The important thing is that the coalition he put together reflects the changing dialogue, the changing political dialogue in this country. And he was moving to the areas of dialogue where people want to be, because people, the electorate on the whole, are not talking about the things that politicians used to talk about 20 years ago. But many of those politicians still carry on talking about those things, and they've lost touch with their own electorate. Now, Boris, either by instinct or analysis, had realized that where people were, and he'd sort of put together a coalition which he could hold together, but there's no sign that any other leader of the Conservative Party has actually twigged that. And in fact, between them, Liz and now Sunak have functionally destroyed the coalition uh, that put the, put Boris into power, which means they've got a much smaller audience to look to for their votes at the next. or well, Rishi now has a much smaller audience to look to for votes at the next general election. And, and, and we're risking seeing the Conservative Party becoming uh, a small and specialist sort of party that appeals to one section of the electorate um, for a very long time indeed. Now, you could say Labour had the same problems, but Labour, and, and that's one of the things that caused them to be wiped out in December 2019, they'd mm-hmm. lost touch with that electorate as well. But to my surprise and disappointment, um, I think Starmer is a little bit cleverer and more aware of this than we necessarily give him credit for. Mm-hmm. And if he puts the right effort in, he may actually succeed in recapturing, you know, building a coalition, but based on
1: Labour. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all very worrying from a Conservative yeah. point. I've never been the, the biggest fan of Boris Johnson, but even I found myself thinking that he could be the, the right person to come back i I found myself actually supporting him in 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 this particular leadership election given all the reasons why he had to resign just a few months ago you know things ranging from partygate and the owen patterson lobbying scandal all the way to uh, the the incident with chris pincher and other by-election losses would it have actually been possible for boris johnson to come back so soon and actually regain the trust of that coalition as you say and the the trust of those mps well i think
0: so and there would have been difficulties i agree and nothing is guaranteed just because you've won an election doesn't mean you're going to win the next election, obviously. So but Boris might have failed, but
1: he'd, he'd have been the best person to have a crack at it. Do you see Boris Johnson trying again for the leadership or do you think he'll just well, I, I accept I and mean, move on from frontline politics?
0: I mean, we're in serious danger of asking the question, what is there left to be leader of You yeah. know, after the next election?
1: I have no idea, though, what his immediate personal intentions are. Hmm to ask him. When we look back on this recent leadership contest then, do you think there should have actually been a ballot of Conservative Party members, have two choices go through, or do you think given the situation we were in, it was actually better to have one candidate come in and stable the shit? Of
0: course there should have been a ballot of members,
1: mm. but I think
0: it became clear very early on that the majority or the, a large number of significant Conservative MPs um, were determined not to have a ballot, whatever mm. happened. And setting the bar of nominations very high was intended to, and I think there was a good reason for doing that, but because it makes things quicker. Mm. Uh, but it was intended to make it much easier for Rishi to get in. Very few wanted a members' ballot, mm. and quite a large number of them wanted Rishi without a members' ballot. And
1: a lot of it was set up to achieve that. So do you think the rules for changing and choosing Conservative Party leaders actually need to be amended and reformed following the events of the last few months? Yes. How so?
0: Well, I think it's inevitable. I don't think the MPs will be happy to expose Mm. themselves again to ending up with a candidate they don't want. Mm. So I think at least while we're in office, possibly in opposition, they might be more relaxed but when it means that the leader of the pro or leader of the party is automatically going to become the prime minister i think they will um be demanding a change in rules i don't think the the mp's will want this to happen again now whether party members will be happy with that how they'll feel about it um i can't really say obviously they would be deprived of the vote would that leave them disillusioned with the conservative party to the point that they wouldn't work so hard for it or they might resign their membership. I don't know. Um, I mean, they're generally quite tough uh, Conservative Party members, and they put up with quite a lot. You, you also have to consider the fact that, of course, that if the Conservative Party shrinks into, be a, into being a centrist, middle-class party of the South, mm. then uh, you open up on your right um, a flank for another party to arrive. Mm. And if that does happen, then, of course,
1: I think a lot of things could change. That idea about a new party on the right, I mean, we've seen over the last few weeks that the Reform Party, formerly the Brexit Party, and the SDP, they've recently signed an electoral pact. There's talks about other right-leaning parties forming to create a new Conservative Party. Do you think, if if that is the case, if the Conservative Party does reform to be this more centrist-viewing political operation, do you think the idea of a new Conservative Party would be more appealing and actually would make some headway. One of the things you have to worry about, we all
0: have to worry about, Nathan, is whether people who feel they have nobody to vote for vote for a new party, Mm. uh, or whether they just stay at home and don't vote. And an awful lot of people will come out to vote where they feel they've got something to vote for. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they don't, they'll stay at home and you get a low turnout. And it isn't necessarily a very fertile ground for a new party so simply having a vacancy on one part of the political spectrum uh, doesn't necessarily mean people will vote for a new party that fills mm. that vacancy. Mm. Um, and it's too early to tell um, if a new party was constituted in a way that was politically and personally appealing to mm. that to that audience, such as to bring them out and get them to come and vote. Who would be the leader? What would be the policies and so on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's even been talks of uh, Nigel Farage making a return to frontline politics. We know oh, he, it. he has certainly. Be, the, again, there've been rumours about it. But looking forward then, look, looking more towards the future, what do you think we can expect from a Rishi Sunak premiership? Well, I take it in two phases. The mm. immediate job of the government
0: is um, to produce a budget. And the budget has to stabilise markets and be well-received by all the important people in the IMF and all those people who love coming on telly and saying how rotten Britain is, Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, And to do that, it has to get the approval of the Office for Budget Responsibility, um, which is basically running the economy at the moment, because this organization, which consists of largely of fairly left-wing economists, it, it didn't exist 10 years ago, but all of a sudden, it's become the most important institution in the country, because they're in there at the moment telling Jeremy Hunt in order to get through our model and get a green tick at the end you have to do this you have to do that and so on we'll tell you what will happen if you do this and if you do that whether you get the green tick or not so you mm. tell us what you want to do and we'll tell you what the model says but if you ask us what we what you might do if you say give me a hint you know we'll give you a hint as well one of the things we want you to do we'd suggest you do is have a lot more immigration um, and that, that would be, that would help give our model a green tick. Whether it's good for the economy is a second-order question because the model is more important than the real-world economy at this stage, mm. um, and that's what's going on. So that's been going on under Liz Truss when Jeremy Hunt was having these discussions when he became Chancellor after Kwasi. Mm. And then along comes uh, Rishi as Prime Minister, and uh, he looks at what's going on, And he immediately says, we're not having that budget on the 31st of October. Mm -hmm. I need to work out what this actually means in practice. Mm -hmm. So how can we sort out some sort of budget that will please the OBR? Whatever it is, Rishi, it's going to be a budget with higher taxes and lower spending. Your job is to mitigate that a little bit round the edges. Mm -hmm. And that job, he will do quite well. Yeah, uh, In my view, because he understands, um, he understands the figures and he understands what's going on. And also because he has more credibility in the financial market. So there's a bit of a Rishi flex in there, a little bit of extra, you can get away with a bit more because it's Rishi. And he'll do that quite well. It'll be a real punishment budget, in my view, and it's what any conservative MP who complains about it can be reminded. <laughs> they chose this is what they voted for. <laughs> they, they could have had something else, but they voted for this. In the days afterwards, as people look into the detail of the red book and so on, they'll they'll realise what uh, that it's much harsh uh, a much harsher budget than Jeremy Hunt made it seem when he was standing at the dispatch box, because one of his skills will be to. Sugar the pill, but people will be taking the sugar off in the next few days. Mm -hmm. But generally that will get us through to Christmas. And in January, um, as the practical effects of the budget start to work through, then what you really need is a leader who is going to be able to say, This is going to be a difficult time. I can I empathize with you. We stick together, we will get through this, and in a year or so it will be better. Mm -hmm. And Uh, and do you believe, is the question, that Rishi Sunak is the person to empathize with people and show them that vision mm-hmm. of where they're going to be going. And I don't think he's essentially got those skills or he hasn't mm-hmm. shown evidence of
1: them. Yeah.
0: Even if he turns up in a pair of shoes, 10 pound shoes from Marks and Spencer's. Mm. Everybody knows.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you've mentioned some of the things we can pot- potentially expect from that mini budget on the 17th of November. But aside from the obvious issues within the economy and indeed the energy sector, what do you think are some of the other really big issues that the prime minister is going to have to tackle over the next few months?
0: Well, I'm not sure that there is, because the state now disposes of 50% of national income. Mm-hmm. Um which makes it, which is, you know, used to be 35%. Mm -hmm. The state has become a player in all sorts of areas of life, which previously were left to the private sector or to individual choice. So, and so many of them are driven by the fiscal position, the tax and spend position, that I, I think almost everything he does is going to be affected by this. He will continue, I'm sure, to support the war in uh, the Ukrainians in their war mm-hmm. uh, against uh, Rush, uh, Russia's illegal invasion. Mm-hmm. I'd expect him to do that with integrity and seriousness, um, much as Boris set the pattern for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other big questions he's got to face is to do with Europe and particularly the Northern Ireland Protocol.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If he goes soft on the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think there will be another. Fault line in the Conservative Party, another potential of a split in
1: the Conservative Party um, over that. So, that I think is is a crucial issue as well. And just on Northern Ireland briefly, the deadline for uh, the party's instalments to agree a power sharing agreement uh, passed, and it now looks like there is going to be another uh, assembly election for Northern Ireland. I, th- I believe the talks are continuing with the Secretary of State, Chris Heaton Harris. But You you know, you you mentioned that it it could be yet another fault line within the Conservative Party. So to what extent do you think that the issues with Northern Ireland will actually really filter through into the Conservative Party? How much of a divide do you think that will be? And I suppose as a follow up, you know, will another Stormont election actually help resolve the issues?
0: Well, nobody thinks another Stormont election is going to produce a very different result from last Mm. time. It's possible it might even help the DUP because they could go back to being the large, slightly larger than mm. Féin. because the reason they weren't last time is that there were splits on the Unionist side. Mm. And if they heal those splits, they might even do better out of it. But they still won't form, or they say they still won't form, um, an, an, an executive and, and an assembly, functioning assembly, uh, unless the Northern Ireland Protocol is dealt with. Now, it may seem the Northern Ireland Protocol really only affects Northern Ireland um, Mm. because it's all about food and, you know, can you get your McVities biscuits and can you import a a tractor to run your farm or whatever. Um, So it it seems like it's just about Northern Ireland. But actually, a lot of Conservative MPs recognise that the Northern Ireland Protocol is about the whole United Kingdom. In two ways. First of all, it means that the United Kingdom, part of the United Kingdom, is still operating under Euro- European Union law, only now with no democratic representative say. It makes Northern Ireland the only, pa- only place outside the Donbass and Crimea and the whole of Europe, which is governed by a foreign power with no representative say. That cannot be right in mm-hmm. uh, modern Europe and it cannot be right in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. The second way it affects the whole United Kingdom is that it inhibits the British government from departing from EU laws and standards, because the further Great Britain departs from those, the more it departs from Northern Ireland, which, of course, is part of the United Kingdom. And the European Union knows this. Now, I'm not talking about here departing from standards and having you know, dangerous food and things like that. But things like the VAT rates and taxes and so on, that where you can do things in Britain, but you wouldn't be able to do them in Northern Ireland because the European Mm -hmm. Union is still running so much of the Northern Irish economy with no representation. So a lot of conservatives do feel this is a big thing. And it's not about, you know, sausages as such. And it's not even the same arguments the DUP would necessarily make
1: because they have a different focus a Northern Irish focus, whereas Conservatives also have a UK focus. It was announced this week as well that the Prime Minister will not be attending the COP27 summit in Egypt in two weeks' time. Do you think he's made the right decision there, considering how successful COP26 in Glasgow was last year and also how central he was to that particular summit when he was Chancellor?
0: Um, I don't know what considerations he took into account. Personally, I think most people uh, in current circumstances Want to see the prime minister at home sorting out the job and would be disappointed if they saw him going off in a jumbo to a great big jamboree where there'd be an awful lot of speeches and nothing much decided. Um, mm. where the rooms are two thousand pounds a night, um, in the hotels because Sharm el Sheikh is full at the moment, you know, booked so on, and um, and to achieve what. So, I think most people would feel a bit put off if they saw him going. But against that, he has to weigh other considerations. He's obviously weighed
1: them and decided not to go. Just to finish then, looking at the, the state of the Conservative Party overall, where do you see it going next? Can Rishi Sunak actually reunite this deeply fractured party?
0: Well, yes, I think the party at the moment is relatively united. The question, though, is um, whether his policies offer any hope for the Conservative Party for mm. the future. I think that's the, that's the difficulty so I don't see any great rebellions going on inside the Conservative Party against Rishi, Rishi Sunak right now. As I say, I think there might well be a rebellion over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that is, the, 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 there are Conservative MPs who've said that quite explicitly and warned him, mm. uh, even during the election campaign. Even when they were giving him their support, they were saying, "We'll support you. But if you let us down on the Northern Ireland Protocol, then all bets are off. But that hasn't happened yet. So I think the party is relatively united, um, as as united as ever, ever has been. The question isn't, is it united? The question is, does it have the stomach for going down the road of increasing taxes and cutting spending that Rishi is going to have to force on the country? And whether they think that there is any electoral prospect for them at the end of that path, And I think both of those questions remain quite open at the moment.
1: And just on on that idea about the electoral prospects, I mean, can the Prime Minister hold off calling a general election until May 2024, when we expect it to happen? Or will it have to come sooner, given the new policy agenda he's implementing and the fact that he doesn't actually have his own mandate yet?
0: I don't think those are the reasons. I, I think I'm increasingly of the view that there could be an election in the spring of next year. Mm -hmm. rather than the spring of 2024 but i don't think it's because of this this idea of having a mandate and Mm -hmm. so on that's not part of our constitution gordon Mm -hmm. brown did not have a mandate and nobody said well not many people Mm -hmm. said seriously said you can't be prime minister um he stayed on to the last minute as well two and a half years i think he was prime minister before he something like that before he a couple of years anyway before he had an election, and and then it was because he had to, up against the five-year limit. Um, No, I think it's more because unless the Conservative Party, and this is true of any party, if you haven't actually got a vision for governing and know where you're going to go, then you tend to collapse in in a state of exhaustion, especially after 12 years. And I think Rishi has to show uh, tremendous leadership skills, vision skills, and empathy skills in order to be able to set out a path which, where people will be willing to follow him for another two years. I don't think it's this thing about having a mandate. He's got to have the vision and the leadership. And
1: as yet, we haven't seen that. Okay. Lord Moylan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Nathan. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working...